Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about the strange, the bizarre, and in this case, the gory Italian films of the VHS era. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Hi. And tonight, we are doing the 1979 Joe D'Amato classic, if it can be called that, Beyond the Darkness, also known as Boyo Omego, as well as Buried Alive. That was the American release title. Leland, which of those titles do you think is the best? Well, I certainly think Buried Alive kind of ruins certain aspects of the plot, right? I think Beyond the Darkness is fine. It has that like Bond title-esque quality to it where it's vague. It kind of tells you what's going on, but it's not too literal. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think my problem with Buried Alive isn't so much that it gives something away is that like it's kind of inapplicable to all but the last couple minutes of the movie. True that. So we're going to talk more about Joe D'Amato, this director. But speaking of titles, I just wanted to read you some of the other titles of films that he's directed. I can't think of if we have watched anything by him before. And by we, I mean you making me watch other films by this guy. Yeah, so he's probably best known for Anthropophagus or The Grim Reaper and its sequel, Monster Hunter or Absurd. Well, I definitely saw Anthropophagus, but uh, I I missed that sequel. Let me tell you, I like the sequel more than the original. Um, I think I think Monster Hunter, which is the American title, is is probably his best film. Um, I, I even like it slightly more than this one, uh, and I like this quite a bit. But he's known as one of the most prolific directors of all time. On IMDb, he has 197 movies that he directed. He directed a lot of porn. Uh, he directed westerns, comedies, fantasy, like sword and sandal type movies. I think he only did three or four straight horror movies, though. What uh, a so renaissance, this... man. Are we classifying this as a straight horror film? I would, as opposed to what? I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's it's unclassifiable, which I think is true of many of the films we're talking about on this show. But I, I would categorize it as a horror movie. I don't know. I wasn't really ever, um, well, maybe it's because I'm a grown-ass man and you know emotionally jaded, but I was never really like in any sort of um, like dread or fear. Like this, this movie didn't give me any kind of anxiety. Maybe it's because I'm not, Frank's ideal victim type of like young Italian woman. This whole movie struck me as more of a character study on Frank. Well, one thing I read a quote from Joe D'Amato where he said that he didn't feel like he had the skill to build suspense. So instead, he just tried to be as shocking as possible because he thought that that was the only talent he had for making something that might scare people. It's really important to play to your strengths. Yeah, so essentially that's what he was doing. And then on the DVD, there's an interesting interview with the actress that plays the dead girlfriend, Anna. And she, the interviewer asked her if she finds the movie scary. And she said no, because she's not very interested in material things like bodies 
and material environments, that she's more of like a spiritual person. And so just seeing grotesque depictions of the human body don't scare her. I thought that was an interesting take. Do you think that's just like some philosophical fluff or does that sound genuine to you? I don't know. She came across as a really interesting interview. Um, if you've got the DVD, you should definitely give it a listen. It's short. And I, I was surprised by some of the things she said. We, we might get back to that later. But here, here's some of his other films. Uh, and I just want to <laughs> see what you think of these titles. All right. I really like this one. God is my cult 45. And let's see. He directed a bunch of the Emmanuel movies. Um, oh, yeah. The Emmanuels. Well, that was a series of Italian and French erotic films, like softcore type things. But some of them border on horror and some of them border on like adventure or exploitation. And then there's ones that are like softcore romance. It really spans a lot of different worlds. But for example, he directed one called Emmanuel in the Last Cannibals. And he did one called Emmanuel in the White Slave Trade. So you know how like, uh, I think it was like in the 70s where you would just have these random films come out like, you know, Hercules versus like the like wrestler space women or like Hercules versus X. Like they'd always just pick an enemy. Yeah. It, it seems like that's what he's going for. But in softcore pornography. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there was a lot of weird crossover hybrid sort of things in Italy, especially. Uh, so, for example, this film was at one point titled La Casa 3. And La Casa is a series of Italian movies that they've changed over the years. So La Casa 1 has always been Evil Dead. La Casa 2 is Evil Dead 2. La Casa 3 is sometimes was sometimes titled for this movie, and sometimes it was titled for Ghost House, which we might eventually do. I, that's a fun haunted house movie. Um, the American movies House and House 2 were also included in the La Casa series. So in Italy, they just retitled these movies to make them part of series even if they really had nothing to do with one another so when you get into the world of italian movie titles it can get really confusing i feel like um italian cinema is not the only like cultural cinema that does that but i can't think of another example off the top of my head yeah i mean they might do it in other parts of europe as well but i'm not like, I know Italian horror the best, so I don't know that I can speak to anything else. But, all right, so here's some more titles of his movies. Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals. Is that a softcore pornography? I don't know what it is. I haven't looked at its entry. Uh, I really like this one, Porno Holocaust. The Emperor Caligula, The Untold Story. How many softcore porns based on Caligula exist exactly I mean I'm sure there's a lot and that the majority of them are Italian <laughs> do you think you could we could just do like an entire like episode podcast on that genre like is there are there enough entries there probably are I just don't find them interesting I don't find any of those Caligula movies interesting 
Caligula madness, so formulaic, right? Well, John Waters has this quote where he says that he doesn't like watching pornography because it looks too much like open heart surgery. And that doesn't quite apply to how I feel about Caligula movies, but it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe that's quote isn't applicable at all. There's just, for some reason, I have a distaste for them. I don't find them entertaining to talk about because you're not actually looking at any characterization or any plot development or any acting. You're lo just looking at like grotesqueries and sex. And I just, I don't find that interesting to talk about. Imagine that production studio, right? They're, they're looking at what their, their portfolio is looking like for the next year. <laughs> they're trying to set up filming schedules and they're like, you know, it's just, fuck it. Just, just a bunch of Caligula softcore porns. Just roll with it. I mean, if you want to do a research project on the Caligula uh, series of films, go for it. Like, I'll read about it. But he did a film. Uh, so he was still directing in like the late 90s. He did a movie in 1995 called 120 Days of Anal. The same year he did what I assume is a Tarzan ripoff called Tars Hard, The Return. Does that even translate into Italian like the same way? I don't know. His names are apparently great. He has one called Paprika, The Last Italian Whore. That was the <laughs> she was the last one. All all these are the same year. Uh Gangland Bangers, Homo Erectus, Robin Hood, Thief of Wives. <laughs> when, when when did this guy uh step down from, from filmmaking? When Let's see. Country? He he died in nineteen ninety-nine. So that would have been the same year that he made Experiences 1 and 2, The Final Assault, and one year after making Harem 2000, Hell's Angels 3. Shortly before that, it was Black Cops in Budapest and Cop Sucker 2. Okay, I think we get the idea. Yes, this, this Renaissance man was basically making movies up onto his deathbed. Yeah, I mean, he said, so I actually, I don't know if I respect this or it gives me less respect for him. I'm not, I'm honestly not sure how I feel about this, but he, he has said that defiantly said, I am not an artist. I'm a businessman. And I view making movies as a business. Do you think that comes through in this movie we're talking about tonight, or does it seem like an artistic creation? I mean, it seems like an artistic creation, but I also understand the necessity to, you know, get that shutter. Yeah, I think he just, I don't think he had any vision. You know, it's kind of like the, the statement that he didn't have the skill to make something suspenseful, so how do I make it shocking instead? Like, that's not, that doesn't show an artistic conviction, right? It just shows, like, a marketing ploy, almost. And so it really changes how I think the movies come out if you view all his work as a body of work. But this, a lot of people consider this his best movie, and I certainly think it's his most artistic of the ones i've seen i mean uh you know maybe he wasn't setting out to make 
art, but that doesn't mean all great works of art were created on purpose, right? Not to say that Beyond the Darkness is a great work of art, but it, he it he definitely made a good movie. Well, we it should intentional or an accident. Yeah, I mean, we should also point out that there's other art involved here, right? Like there's actors, there's writers, there's the wonderful musical score by Goblin, like all of the it, it's not just the director who is an artist. Um, so even if he saw it more as a business venture, I don't think that's really a knock on the artistry of the film. Although, so I want to read you the back of my VHS box um, because this I don't think suggests artistry at all. So this is the version called Buried Alive from Thriller Video. And the first way I ever saw this movie was I got it from a video store. So that's kind of a I, I like discovering things like this without having done the research ahead of time. Like I miss the days where you just rented a movie and you thought it was a normal horror movie and you ended up with this. Like that's an exciting feeling that we don't get anymore, I don't suppose. Uh, but here's what the back of the box says. Acclaimed the goriest film of the year by Gore Gazette. Buried Alive features scenes of unbelievable violence and cruelty from the master director of Italian horror films, Joe D'Amato. It all starts when a young psychotic taxidermist steals the body of his dead fiance and insanely tries to keep it alive in his bed of the dead. Assisted by his sexually kinky and secretly sinister housekeeper, Iris, soon the killings and mutilations start. One by one, innocent young women are hacked and gouged to death in an insane ritual that defies sensibility. See, savage dismemberments, an acid bath revenge, and even a death by chewing in a blood-frenzied act of savage cannibalism. It's beyond anything you've ever seen before and anything you'll ever want to see again. And then there's a warning label that says, this motion picture is one of the most violent films ever made. There are scenes of sadistic cruelty graphically shown. If the presentation of disgusting and repulsive material upsets you, please do not view this film. So yeah, it really ain't that bad. <laughs> no, I mean, so ordinarily, like a lot of VHS collectors know a lot of these tapes from the 80s, especially the ones from like wizard video and thriller video with the huge boxes and the really garish artwork. Like a lot of times the descriptions on the back are just hyping it up, right? They're no. nonsense. They even sometimes they show art or images that have nothing to do with what's in the movie. Uh, this one is not really hyping it up <laughs> for when this movie came out. I mean, still now, I guess this is pretty shocking stuff. No, I don't think we will ever cover a unicorn film on this podcast because going past the box is a big no-no. Oh, I, but I love unicorn releases. Like, those boxes are... I mean, if anyone is out there and you've got unicorn videos that you're willing to sell, hit me up because I reluctantly sold my collection of them years ago and I'm trying to regrow it and there's just a few I, I really badly need. Um, but you're right, Leland, 99% of the movies on Unicorn suck, but the boxes are awesome. So uh, on the back of that box, it quoted some some magazine. What was it? 
uh, Cinema Gore. What was it? Gore Gazette. Gore Gazette. So, do you think Gore Gazette was like an actual magazine at the time, or was that just like two guys fucking around like we're doing right now? I have no idea. Let Let's. Do you think they just up. made it up? I'm googling That's it right now. <laughs> uh it was real. Apparently, there's even some available on Amazon. So was it a magazine? Yeah, there's a there's an article on bedlamfiles.com called Remembering Rick Sullivan and the Gore Gazette. Hmm. They call it a legendary fanzine and one of the holy trinity of 1980s and 90s horror movie fanzines, along with Sleazoid Express and Psychotronic. Those were all definitely before my time. Yeah, well... Psychotronic, I think, was sort of the umbrella company over Starlog, Fangoria, Fantastic Films, some of those other magazines that I definitely subscribed to as a kid. Is Fangoria still around or did they convert to all website? No, they they closed for a few years. Uh, They had gone out of business. And then I think somebody new bought it. And they started releasing magazines again. Well, good luck to that guy. Yeah, but anyway, to, to bring this back, this is one of the rare examples where the video box, like the movie lives up to the video box. This, this is what I'm happy to watch. And, and it's interesting, thriller video, I don't think this is cut at all. Uh, I read some articles online that said the VHS is cut. But the running time is the exact same as it is on my uncut DVD, and I haven't noticed any difference. So if you know otherwise, listeners, let me know. But I, I don't think Thriller cut their movies. Like, they also released to make them die slowly, and I don't think that VHS is cut either. I do know that most of the Thriller video releases were introduced by Elvira, and she refused to introduce this or make them die slowly because she was against the violence. I mean, there is a lot of violence towards women in this film. Do you think it's uniquely towards women? Like, do you think that this is a misogynist film? I don't know. I think this is something a sociologist would call like passively misogynist where like you're taking that quiz and you're answering no to all the hate questions, but then you get the results and it turns out like, because of how you answered and how long you took to delay clicking the bubbles. Oh, no, it turns out you're misogynist anyway. Yeah, like an implicit bias <laughs> test. Yeah, implicit bias. Yeah, so I have i don't know that I find it misogynist, but it is interesting that all of Joe D'Amato's films I've seen portray violence against women, whether it's sexual or just traditional violence. And... Yet, if you read interviews with his actresses, they all talk about how he was such a fatherly figure and he was so kind-hearted and gentle and, like, really easygoing and relaxed on set and just how great he was to work with. And this is something I wanted to ask you. Do you think that... So, we're, we're getting into spoiler territory here, but... The plot of this movie involves a man taxidermying or stuffing his dead fiance and bringing her home and putting her in the bed. Do you think that he does that because he 
is objectifying her and turning her into like a sex object? Or do you think he's doing it because he worships her and is addicted, for lack of a better word, to his love for her? Like, is this a loving act or is it an objectifying act? I don't know if it's really worth trying to analyze the finer points of the screenplay of this film just because of what the director said initially, right? Like he wasn't trying to wow people with the script. He's just trying to shock them. And I, I think if you really try to get into the nitty gritty of of character of like of a character study of Frank, like the real details, um, there's probably a little bit of inconsistency there. Um, like so Joe DeMotto didn't probably end up touching on later. Joe DeMotto didn't write the film, but the interestingly, the the writers who did do it really didn't write much else. I think they had like one movie, one other movie each. Um, but I, I asked because in the interview on the DVD with the actress, she said that she saw this as she almost described it as empowering because she felt like Frank's loyalty to and worship of her character transcended death. And I have always thought of this film as Frank literally turning her into an object that he yeah. could possess. He and fetishized her pretty hard. Now, right. You can, you can talk about would he have gone this route if she wasn't murdered, but at the end again spoilers end of the film he tries to do the same thing the same exact thing to her still living sister right so that throws uh i, I think that casts that theory in a, a dark shadow all right so since we are getting into spoiler territory why don't we go ahead and play the trailer and then we'll go through the plot ladies and gentlemen if you are easily frightened, we advise you not to watch this film. On the other hand, if you enjoy the violent emotions, this film is for you. Sometimes I could kill you, Iris. Just once. I want you to make love to me before I die. You mustn't speak like that. Death has no power to separate us. You swore you'd never come back into this room again. I want to stay here alone with my mother. Frank, your mother's dead. So is Anna.
to get rid of your stupid little toys. Do you understand me, Frank? No! You will, though. You'll see. You'll do it. The young girl was reported missing three days ago. When last seen, she was in this area. Did you see anyone then? No. Who are you? Police. violent emotions, this film is for you. All and right. The entire film. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, as we've mentioned before, they didn't know how to do trailers then. I have a I have a very ignorant question to ask. Okay. Is it Goblin or The Goblins? Because uh, I have seen both. Yeah, in in this film they're credited as The Goblins at least in the version I watched, but um it was the same band and they I think they officially went by Goblin. So I was going to ask you about that cuz the first thing that jumps out in this movie I think over the introductory credits is the Goblin soundtrack. And obviously you heard it in that um, that trailer just now. What do you think of the score of this movie? If you watch this movie, you're going to hear that song a lot, but it slaps every time. Yeah, I, I like Goblin a lot, and I like this score. Um, I, I had the pleasure a couple years ago to see them perform the Suspiria soundtrack live. And... One thing that strikes me differently about this film is I don't think Joe D'Amato knows how to use Goblin the way Dario Argento does. Like, it's still a good score, but it's not quite as integrated into the film or as it doesn't quite match the style of the film the way that Goblin scores do in Argento's movies. It certainly doesn't match the uh, minimalistic credits at the beginning. I, there's really something about them that speak to me, right? Just simple white letters, no fancy graphics or whooshes. It doesn't really match the feel of the film. Like during the preview in the back of the box, it's almost like a used car salesman trying to to grift this uh, like really grungy movie to you, right? And then it's just like basic Comic Sans font with with this like psychedelic soundtrack in the version you watched were the opening credits over the film or were they just over like black they were over the film frank okay. was driving right. his unmarked predator van okay because in there there are versions of this movie that have a separate title sequence but yeah i watched the same one you did so yeah i, I the soundtrack is great it's just not like in Dario Argento's films, the colors and the lighting and the acting are all really psychedelic, too. And so they work in concert with the scores really well, whereas this film is really like dingy and drab looking. And like, I think that fits the content really well. I, I like the look of the movie. It's just it doesn't match the score as well as some other Italian films do. 
it's part of the charm though like it's all kind of um a little bit incongruous but it all it all comes together to to make like a very like a very unique feel have have you seen a lot of italian horror movies mm, probably less than 50 okay i was just wondering if you think that this is consistent with the italian style as you know it or if this is kind of a different thing i mean it, it seems like it fits right it has that that like sleaze fest vibe to it you got the electronic soundtrack the 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 the, the audio dubbing the the grungy camera work in like really scenic locations oh, and the the practical effects seem like they're on par with each other. Yeah, I mean, if anything, speaking of practical effects, like I'm going to get to this, but I think this is probably the most impressive gore film from the period that I've ever seen. But as far as like, I love Italian horror movies and the way I describe them is their plots rarely make sense. Even in the case of giallos that are really plot driven, uh, they're more like dreamlike and surreal. Um, I think that's especially true of Lucio Fulci's work and some of Argento's. And this movie doesn't quite have that to me. In some ways, it feels more grounded or more realistic than a lot of Italian horror. But in other ways, like it's clearly Italian. The gore effects, the score, the acting and the dub, as you say, uh, the camera zoom-ins that seem random and, and jarring. Some of the visuals, certainly the, the sort of strange psychosexual motives of the characters, all that is very characteristic of Italian films. So after the trailer or after the credit sequence, we see Iris, this sort of middle-aged, I suppose, woman, is working with someone who's casting a voodoo spell. She looks like an evil deer. I just want to throw that out there. That's a fair description. I actually, like, I think she's really pretty. But she's got a, this wonderful, sinister expression on her face the whole time. Like, I think this is a great performance, and I think it's perfectly cast. So I want to throw this out there right away. And maybe I'm just really dense. I did not figure out this woman's relationship to fr to the main character until like almost the end of the film. Okay, and what did you think it was based on the end of the film? So may maybe I can maybe I can try to paint paint my odyssey to figure this out, right? Okay. But like maybe it's immediately apparent to Italians or those familiar with Italian culture because of the way she's dressed, but I did not figure out that she was a maid until almost the end of the movie. If that is what she actually is, because she's so fucking mysterious in the beginning of the film and she's performing magic. Right. So at first I thought she was this uh, overly protective mother, but then there's the scene where they reminisce about Frank's deceased mother. So maybe an aunt or an older sister, but no, because then later you meet Iris's inbred looking family and they're thrilled about the prospect of them getting married. So 
then I started to think that she was some kind of sorceress who maybe killed his mother and then forced herself into Frank's life as like a means of grabbing his inheritance. But not nah, dog. She was just like a, a maid or a wet nurse or something. Well, I, I, I certainly I like think some kind of wasted potential there. I think it's realistic that she killed the mother. I've always kind of assumed that. Well, you know, this film is a remake. Yeah, so that's something that I found out in the research for this film. And I have not seen the original. And as I was looking, it's incredibly hard to find. Like, you've got to order a bootleg DVD as far as I can tell. But yeah, but, she, she kills the mother in the original. Well, I thought, based on my reading in the original, she is the mother. Mm, and it's incestuous. Hmm. No, what I read in the beginning, or for, for the for the original was uh that the maid actually pushes the mother down a flight of stairs and kills her mm, i'll have to so the original was called the third eye and it was made in 1966 and i have not seen it so i can't say for sure no, but neither of us have seen it we're we're going based off what people have written on the internet Right. And yeah, so I read that that she was the mother in the original, but sticking to this film to buried alive uh, beyond the darkness. Yeah, I had the same reaction as you the first time I watched it. Like at first I thought she was a mother and then I thought maybe she was like an aunt. And then eventually I settled on she was like a caretaker or a nanny figure. Um, but yeah, she clearly wants to be in a relationship married to our main character, Frank. And I suspect she killed the mother in order to do that. She cast this voodoo spell on the girlfriend, the fiance, to kill her in order to be with him. And there's some parts of the movie where it suggests that she's doing it for like the inheritance or the money. Like, it really got to the point where I thought her identity was going to be a big reveal at the end of the film. Yeah, no, there, I mean, there are reveals, but that's not one of them. So, this voodoo scene, right? What was your first thought about it? Like, mine was, at first I thought it was kind of progressive to see, like, a, a non-person of color, like, practitioner of voodoo. But then that was immediately followed by, like, maybe this is just the cultural appropriation right served with like a side of problematic stereotyping of, of roma culture yeah i i didn't think about it that much i honestly just think it's like most of these italian movies and especially joe d'amato's i think are just an amalgamation of plot details in order to hasten you to the gore scenes and that i that's what's going on here i think the writer was probably like how do we get this girlfriend dead? I know. Let's do it with the voodoo. Like, oh, I certainly don't think they thought about any of that stuff, especially since it was the seventies when they wrote this. But no, nah, I think it's just a plot device. But isn't it weird that this is like one of two instances of magic realism in like the entire movie? Yeah, it it doesn't play a big role, so it is. It does feel a little bit out of place. But we find out that Frank is a taxidermist. And the way we find out is that we see him dealing with uh, a dead baboon. You think this is a real baboon, right? Oh, that is 100% a real baboon. So do you, 
like, I wonder what the law was around that, because I don't think in America you could taxidermy baboons back then. I mean, I know you can't now. Uh, um, I'm a little I'm a little rusty on my taxidermy law from the 70s. But, you know, animal rights in general didn't really start be- becoming a, a mainstream thing until like till like the 90s. Right. Maybe the late 80s. I certainly don't think it did in Italy. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'll say one thing that's unrealistic about the taxidermy in this film. Well, two things. One, we see this twice where Frank injects the baboon with something, I assume, to prevent rigor mortis because he also injects his dead fiance with it. And both her and the baboon remain remarkably limp. Uh, according to my wife, who used to be a taxidermist, there is no such thing that could work this way, the way we see in the film. No, you can't just put some Mike's Hard Lemonade in a plunger and let it go? No, apparently not. Um, I, I My own taxidermy experience is limited, so I am drawing on hers. But also, we... Th- now, I don't know how he got this house. I'm assuming he inherited it. But there's no fucking way that taxidermy is paying for this house they live in. No, this whole film is is kind of like a warning to what happens when you abolish the estate tax. Frank is like a trust fund kid. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, um, he has too much time on his hands. This a is troubled one, yeah. Yeah, this is what people did for cell phones. But also that that dude who left off the baboon, he shows up like two days later and asks if it's ready. Something like that takes like six months. Like, that's a long process. There's no way that's getting done in a couple of days. Maybe he just doesn't know. Or maybe it's just a setup. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, so did you think the guy who shows up for the baboon, do you think that was just a setup so that the other guy, the like private investigator guy, could snoop around? God, at first, I thought that dude was supposed to be some sort of like professional blackmailer. And I did not expect him to just be like the, like a weird church private, the church's like retained private investigator. Yeah, we're, we're jumping all over the place in this movie. But, all right, all right. But guys, there's, there's voodoo. Evil deer commits voodoo to kill fiance. Let's pick it up from there. Who is a taxidermist? Oh wait, no baboon. Baboon shot up with preservatives. All right, back on track. But yeah, I mean, to our listeners, if you haven't seen this, the plot in this movie doesn't matter very much. Um, with that said, I love the characters. But let let's let's get. I love this scene in the hospital where Frank's fiance is dying, and she says that she wants him to make love to her one more time before she dies. But then she dies mid kiss. <laughs> so close almost there i know right what do you think like let's say that this was set today and the nurse walked in and the patient was having sex with her fiance in the hospital bed do you think that they'd interrupt or do you think that leave them alone to keep at it uh they'd probably call security and then wait for them to finish up that sounds about right i mean i wonder if there's really rules against that Listeners, if you're in the medical field, let me know. We could. Pro- this has probably already happened. We can probably find a story on it online. I'm sure, but um, no, I'll be lazy and rely on on listeners. 
in in hindsight, it's really a miracle the fiance even survived in under Frank's care long enough to be killed by Voodoo. I yeah, that's true. That's true, especially given how sinister Iris comes across. But after the hospital scene, we see Iris and Frank talking, and Iris keeps saying things like, no one else but Iris is here to take care of you, and Iris will take care of you the rest of her life, and nobody knows you the way Iris does. And like she speaks in the third person and really controllingly. I, I really like the way that she's set up as a character. A after that, she breastfeeds him. Naturally. What did you think of the this scene? I mean, that's just the, the logical follow-up to casting charm person on somebody, right? In like a D&D &D campaign. That's, that's kind of what like this whole thing reminded me of. Where she's talking in the third person. It's very rhythmic. It's almost like she's hypnotizing Frank. I never thought of that. But what really strikes me is like, this is not like, oh, he's, you know, he's given a suckle on her nipple. He's drinking milk like she's breastfeeding him it, it's really obscene <laughs> that's why i was like saying like maybe she was a wet nurse at some point right but she's like still going she's she's you know still got some in the tank i mean maybe she is and then of course knowing italian film like frank might supposed to be 16 <laughs> like i mean he looks he looks wait, at least 35 but wait, we don't know he what he's really supposed to be yeah, I don't think there's any there's any ages here. In in fact, I think correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first episode that doesn't have children getting traumatized. No, nah, no children in this oh, movie no at all. Children getting victimized. We broke the streak. Well, children don't belong anywhere near this movie or or the story of this movie. So well, I mean, at least best. this movie wasn't rated PG. They made that pretty pretty uh, clear in the trailer. Right, I think this was rated X or or unrated, um, but we already mentioned when Frank is injecting Anna in the in the mortuary with the the lemonade or whatever you called it. The mortician sees him doing this. Did that ever have any impact on the plot? So, like, I, I don't know this guy's name. He looks like a dollar store Udo Kier to me. And he's okay, I can see that. He's creeping on our boy Frank like the entire time after seeing that. But he doesn't say anything. Like you would think he would bring something up to the the priest that he saw this sort of thing, but he just lets it go. Thinking he's working for the church. I, I actually thought he was uh he was like some kind of professional blackmailer. He's like out for the, the for the riches. I mean, that's what I like this about Italian movies, and it's also frustrating, is plot lines and scenes are set up like this that then go nowhere, that don't they don't have any bearing on the plot. But I like that it's there as an added detail. It makes it feel like every single person in the movie has some sort of ulterior perverted motive that we might just not know about yet. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know, it really adds to the atmosphere and like my enjoyment of these films. But because he gets away with it, because Frank gets away with it, he goes and digs her back up and he's driving her home, her dead body home, and he gets oh. a flat tire. Dude, you are uh, the, the, the scene where he is burying or un, like 
unburying the 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 fiance was so well done. House, I don't even remember it. Really, like the 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 same goblin sat like you know track plays, but the crescendo of the of the of the track pops as soon as he gets the lid off the coffin. It's really well done. You got to go back and watch it if you don't remember it. I mean, I've seen this movie a ton of times, but maybe I just take for granted Goblin scores because I watch so many Italian horror movies. I don't know, man. My, I was just like, oh, man, symphonic beats to relax, desecrate grapes too. Well, that, and, and that's what I was getting at. Is like, there are moments like that where the music syncs up perfectly, and then there's moments where the movie just se- or the music just seems chaotic and like ill-fitted, but... Again, that's all the charm of Italian horror. And if you either love it or you don't, it's a weird world. But what I was going to bring up is when he gets the flat tire, he's seen by a policeman. And one thing that struck me, like imagine this scene in an American movie. It would have been really suspenseful where the movie was making us think that the policeman was going to see the dead body and then Frank was going to have to kill him or something. But no, in this movie, there's no suspense or buildup before. Uh, during this, the the police officer is just like, ah, you okay? Cool. And then he drives away. Like, do you think that this scene was supposed to be suspenseful or is it just an odd happenstance? I mean, I think there's supposed to be a little bit of suspense, but it definitely they definitely didn't ham it up. No. Frank is like a cold professional right he you know he keeps straight face hell this is this is the fastest changing of a tire i have ever seen in a movie or real life (laughs) he has this huge truck and he cranks up that jack like in 30 seconds yo he's a beast he's so tall (laughs) yeah i mean that's how he gets the girls right he's just tall well he only wants one apparently but he while he's talking to the policeman, this hitchhiker who he had ignored sneaks into the car and insists that he drives her uh, and she starts rolling a joint. She says, I've got some good shit I'll turn you on to. But he's not interested at all. And at one point, Anna's arm slips out from the back seat and like almost touches her on the shoulder. So there's a little bit of suspense built up in this scene. Like we don't know if she's going to see the body yet or not. But then this also goes nowhere, really. She just falls asleep and he drives her home. I mean, this is kind of something that gets more prevalent as the movie continues. But did you notice how awfully wiggly all of the corpses be? No, I didn't. Dead weight. Everyone just turns to jello. Well, yeah, because he injected them with that fluid. Mm, I mean, even even the people that haven't been injected yet, like the later victims, including the hitchhiker in the van right now, turns straight jiggly one i don't expect realism from my italian films but two if that's the only thing this movie gets off because it's surgical and gore scenes are otherwise fantastically real looking like so real that people thought that they had used real corpses for this film if if that's the detail that's off like i can accept that anyway back to this rude hitchhiker yeah so he just takes her home i mean He could have woken her up and dropped her off somewhere who just like, especially if you knew you were going to be doing something that's that society would frown upon. Why would you take her home? Yeah, that's a great question. Like he could have just kicked her out at some point. 
Exactly. Open the door, kick her out while the vehicle's still moving. It would have been fine. Right. And he doesn't, it's not like he shows any interest in killing her or kidnapping her. She's just a nuisance. But he doesn't even bother trying to get rid of her. It's just a plot device to get the body count up. Yeah, that's very true. But they could have given him some sort of motive. uh, But no. So while she's asleep in the in the truck, we see Frank start to perform surgery where he is taking out all of Anna's internal organs so that he can stuff her. And this surgery looks so fucking real. The first time I saw this, I thought it had to be real bodies. Nah, it's pig. Yeah, it is. They did it. It's really well done, though. They did it with pigs and uh, mannequins. But, you know, there were movies at this time that had scenes like this that used real surgery footage or used real cadavers. Like Dr. Gore did it, um, which is also called The Body Shop, and which is a terrible, terrible movie. Uh, Night of the Bloody Transplant did it, another terrible movie. So uh, the first time I saw this, I thought they must have used cadavers. But... No, it's just very realistic looking special effects using pig organs. I haven't uh, seen those other movies you mentioned, but I probably would have assumed also pig because <laughs> I didn't know there was actually real surgery used. In, in yeah, in, I mean, in those movies, it's, it's not like they had the actors doing it. It's like they used stock footage of surgeries and injected it into the movie, mm-hmm. but... I mean, you can tell it's real. So as a as a special effect, it has impact. But those movies are terrible. Like, I definitely don't suggest you go seek them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he when he takes out the heart, he takes a bite out of it. And I love this scene. The blood is kind of spurting out of the edges. Aorta. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that is this heart a, a special effect or is it a pig heart? I think it actually is. Well, if it isn't a pig heart, it, I mean, it could be some other like butchered animal, right? But I don't think he actually takes a bite out of it. He just squeezes it and the fluid just comes out in all the right places. So you think that's real blood squirting out or do you think they put like... I think they put something in there. Yeah, me too. Wouldn't have been coagulated by now? Oh, yeah, no, I think so. Lemonade, right? I don't think it would have. <laughs> I don't think it would have squirted out the way that it did. But uh, I'm glad it, it did. I'm glad it did. Well, also, the the other thing that makes this scene seem really real is the sound effects. The When he's pumping the blood out of the body through the nostrils, the sound effect is so well done. It really sounds like he's pushing blood out of the body. I really take for granted how the entire movie is dubbed over right sound effects music voices everything i really took that for granted i didn't think about that it's once you kind of slip into the world of italian film it almost becomes normalized but it's also part of the charm i mean in these movies like they almost all all the actors on set rarely spoke the same language you had people speaking english people speaking italian people speaking french and then they just dub them all over and it adds to the surrealism and the the dreamlike nature of these films i think it's a plus honestly absolutely but also uh, it's just like a product of its time i don't think you can do this nowadays it wouldn't look right yeah i 
I don't know. I mean, there there have been sort of imitation throwback movies like modern giallos and stuff that try to do this. That yeah. I mean, it seems like you'd come off as like a parody almost. It like, kind of does. Like, like Kung yeah. Pao, Enter the Fist, right? <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. There is. It, did you ever see Berberian Sound Studio? No. Oh, I totally recommend that. So I think it was like 2015, 2016, but it's about a guy who is hired to do the sound effects and the musical score for an Italian giallo movie in the 70s. And then he kind of gradually goes insane, but it shows you the behind the scenes sound development for a movie like this. And it's really, it's really fascinating, actually. And the score for it's great. Like it, it sounds like a a score from the period. I don't remember who did it, but um, really well done. Meanwhile, yeah. So during the scene, we also see the baboon hanging from the the ceiling, and I just can't get over how like real as hell this baboon looks. So it I, I, it's looks got, real to me. Yeah, it's a real baboon. Do you think that it was actually dead or do you think that it was alive and they like drugged it? You know, I, I thought about whether it was tranquilized. Um, I watched this movie with uh, with Lisa and I was like, hey, do you think that baboon is dead or tranquilized? And we couldn't really come to a, a consensus. But yeah, if it's, I, hanging, if it's hanging there, it's got to be deceased, right? Yeah, I mean, that was my thought. Uh, my wife Amanda and I had the same conversation and, and we agreed that it was real and that she thought that it was dead, but she couldn't figure out how they would have avoided the rigor mortis in real life. I guess so. this is kind of like the first. This is like the best dead dead baboon movie I've ever seen. Right. This the second would be Shakma, the movie about murderous baboons. And then I don't think there's a third one. I don't think there are a lot of films that just use real baboons like this. No, I mean the only thing similar I think is Monkey Shines, but that's a. Is that a gorilla in that movie? It's definitely not a baboon. Yeah, I don't remember that movie very well, but it's not a baboon. So the hitchhiker wakes up and she tries to escape. And when the door won't open, she just flat out attacks Frank, which on the one hand, I admire her courage. Like you almost never see people just attack their their kidnappers like this. Uh, But at the same time, couldn't she hit him with something or do something smarter other than just launch herself at him i mean people are anything but rational under stress right so you can kind of uh you can you can like logically come to the conclusion that she just didn't make the right play here i mean for all we know he wasn't even gonna kill her like yeah well like i said i I don't even know why he takes her back Um, that's that's true but yeah, she could have just got a weapon and either went for him or went for a window or went for the door, like try to try to just escape. She 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 just goes full kung fu on Frank. Frank's response, like his counterattack, is to rip her fingernails out. This is the point where you realize there's something not quite right with Frank, right? <laughs> As if all the other stuff wasn't a foreshadowing. Or he's just a cinematic device to make us see gore maybe maybe i mean but like it, you know before you could kind of be like oh it's you know this is all kind of touching in a weird psychopathic way but then he just starts ripping out this woman's fingernails and it's like oh it's not endearing anymore 
yeah, this is one thing like I can watch pretty much anything, but I cannot watch torture to fingernails. I had to look away and I can't watch anything involving the teeth. I just can't take it. Oh, well, good to know. Which is which is really I mean, it's kind of ironic because I bite my nails and I bite them till I they bleed and like that doesn't bother me. But seeing anyone's fingernails hurt on screen can't take it. No, no. I mean, maybe there's something wrong with me, but I, I didn't have any problems watching this one. So one thing I noticed during this, because he starts dragging her body to the car, is that Joe D'Amato shows us everything in real time. Like, all of this is done in real time. We see him dragging the body slowly across the room, struggling to put it into the truck. And like, all of Joe D'Amato's other films do this too, the ones that I've seen. And I actually think it's really effective. I think it... Like, yeah, he says he can't build suspense, but I think he does when he slows things down and shows us things happening in real time. It just makes it feel real. You know, people, when, when people think about murder, they don't think about the cleanup. What has to follow afterwards? Like, you got to drag a body. Like, you got to be able to drag a body a long distance if, if you're trying to cover something up. People don't plan for that. So do you think showing us everything in real time is effective or do you think it makes it boring? I mean, I wasn't bored, but I could see how someone could could point to the scene and say it's padding. Yeah. Again, this is a scene where he's just dragging a very wiggly body around to the van. Uh, Iris shows up and sees, and I like that Iris gets her own like musical cue <laughs> whenever she shows up. It's like, one of those suspenseful zoom in shots with uh, with a musical cue, like you see in Hong Kong kung fu movies. Do you right. want to find it so I can play it? Yeah, that's it. Um, so Iris helps Frank put the taxidermied Anna to bed. Um, and this is where the guy shows up looking for the baboon and his companion goes and searches like snoops around and he finds a locket that belonged to, I guess, Anna that was on her body um, and pockets it. And then they leave and we don't really know what impact, if any, they're going to have on the story at this point. I, I just want to add in here that I think the actress who plays Anna is probably the greatest dead body actor of all time. Oh, totally. I told Amanda the same thing when we were watching. This is the most convincing dead body acting I've ever seen. This is Oscar winning dead body performance. No movement of the eyes, no blinking, no trembling, no sweating, nothing. Totally realistic looking dead body. Just uh, could, could not let that slide. Yeah, so she's she's the one that has an interview on the DVD that I was saying people should watch because mm -hmm. um, she's she's really eloquent, actually, in talking about the film. So Iris and uh, Frank start to chop up the hitchhiker's body and throw it in an acid bath. This is also just like the, the surgery scene. This is super well done. 
It is, but did it bother you just how careless Iris was and splashing corrosive acid everywhere in the bathroom? I did think about that. And I couldn't help but think of the scene in Breaking Bad where the acid eats through the floor. Frank is looking at her, and I'm sure this is not the intent at all the director had, but he's looking at her like, really, man, just stop splashing the acid. He does give... Like, it's clear that Iris does not feel any fear, no remorse, no guilt, no nervousness. She is just in the zone. But the looks that Frank is giving her shows that he's somewhat uncomfortable with this. Oh, yeah. Iris is like the Terminator. She is. Just just keeps going until you're dead. And in the next scene, we see her eating which is really gross. Did you notice this, how gross she eats? I was trying to figure out whether this like gross olive garden was made of people. Yeah, I was trying to figure that too. I was wondering if it was human or if it just reminded Frank of the human they just chopped up. Like, man, this is the maid and this is what she's bringing to the dinner table. I think this is, this is how Frank's parents died. <laughs> totally possible. But... I do think, I don't think it's actually the human that they're eating. I think it just reminds Frank of it, but there's no way to know for sure. And either way, the way she eats is super nasty. (laughs) Eats kind of like a, maybe a witch. Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) This is all, there's all these hints. What about the next scene where she gives Frank a hand job in front of Anna? It's just more of the the hypnotic control going on, right? Yeah, as she's jerking him off, she says, good, clever Iris knows how to take care of him, doesn't she? I mean, I guess hand jobs were more appreciative back in the 70s. They definitely did not carry that sort of weight into the millennium. I, I mean, it's the establishment of this relationship is just so odd because even if she's not related to him, it has an incestuous vibe. And it's clear that he's not interested in her. But she has some sort of holdover or obsession with him. Yeah, there is kind of like an incest vibe to it. But it's more of like a big big stepsister, what are you doing kind of vibe. Yeah. It's not really clear why, but Frank starts killing other women and so i don't know if we want to go into detail on these but for example he is out jogging and another jogger injures her ankle and he talks her into coming back to the house do you think that he was bringing her back to the house to kill her or do you think that that was just kind of an accidental development so for starters This movie kind of makes it hard to push out this impression that everyone in the 70s was just so trusting because starting from like the hitchhiker and and on, it's kind of just like open season on like Italy's young, vulnerable women. Like they just all are so trusting. Maybe it's because he's tall and and beautiful, right? So they're just like enraptured. And then they see the house and then they got to put it on lock. Yeah, she has no hesitation about going home with him. So I think he's obviously attracted to this jogger, but you have to understand that this was before 
the miracle of streaming porn, right? Like Pornhub didn't exist yet. Like there's no magazines laying around or anything. So he really just wants to fantasize about Anna, but he doesn't have, he doesn't, he, I guess he just isn't into the necrophilia, right? So he just needs an analog to interact with while looking at Anna. That was kind of how I saw this scene. Well, so I wanted to ask you, because before he brings the hitchhiker to bed, the same bed that Anna is in. No, not, not quite the same bed. Well, a basically... joint bed. Yeah. So he, is, he is this a marriage bed? Is that what it's called? I don't know. I I didn't even think of it. Nah, whatever. So he he covers Anna's face with the blanket. Do you think he was doing that to hide her from the jogger or to cover her eyes because he felt guilty? I thought he uncovered her, and that was when Jogger looks over and gets the shock. Yeah, but before but before he brought her to the bed, there's a scene where he goes into the bedroom himself and he says he's going to get a bandage and he covers Anna's face. I think that's just to hide hide her from the jogger until she gets in position. Okay, yeah, I, I, it makes sense. So he, he brings the jogger to bed, but you're right. Halfway through their makeout session, he feels compelled to reach over and touch Anna which reveals her to the jogger. And this so this is where the jogger gets scared and and runs it, away. Yeah, this was not a well-thought-out plan. Oh, but I do like this line. I forgot about this. So he tries to kiss the jogger, and she pulls away. He's bandaging her foot, and she says, no, finish that first. <laughs> yeah. Like, the the idea of sex is... Like, there's no question that they're going to be having sex. It's just the question of, is it before or after the bandage? Mm. When the jogger screams and panics, he decides or he reacts to it by biting a chunk out of her neck and eating it. This is the first scene of, like, overt cannibalism we see in the film. I think he's just working with the tools he has available. That Those tools being his teeth. Yeah, but then why does he eat it? I just mean, to gross out the audience? Yeah, I guess. I mean, what are you going to do? Spit it on the floor? Make Iris clean it up? So, again, Iris helps him with the body, and they put it in the furnace, which seems way easier than the acid bath. <laughs> Dismemberment, right? Like, they could have just done this from the beginning. <laughs> the <laughs> You're totally right. But then we wouldn't have gotten the acid bath scene. So, you know, they're just trying to give us a diverse view of the many faces of death, you know. Mm -hmm. But we see this jogger still alive, like writhing in the furnace, being burned alive. And this scene is just horrifying to me. So I figured she was dead before they put her in there. But I guess uh, she wasn't quite there yet. Yeah, I thought she was dead too, but then we see her like writhing around. And yeah, I, I find this actually effective and disturbing, or at least I did until the camera, along with a musical cue, of course, randomly zooms in on her nipple. <laughs> Classic. It's like, in case you forgot that you were watching exploitive trash, here's a nipple shot. Hot, I guess. 
So uh, Iris wants to burn Anna, and this Frank gets in a fight with her and says that no, he's going to keep Anna forever. Um, but he says that he'll do whatever Iris wants, and she can be the mistress of the house. But he's keeping Anna. So this is where I thought that all right, uh, Iris is really just in it for the inheritance. Mm-hmm. But maybe she actually feels something for Frank too. I, I can't really tell. I mean, how can you not be enraptured with that height and those piercing blue serial killer eyes? Well, no one else no one else uh, manages to resist it in the film. So when I, I thought this was interesting. When the police show up to look for the missing jogger, they ask Iris who she is, and she says that she's one of the family. Yeah, yeah, that did not that that did not satisfy me when I was trying to figure out her identity. Didn't clarify anything. Didn't clarify absolutely nothing. Well, she said she's one of the family to the police, but then that we see this dinner scene where she's invited over her very strange looking friends or family. I'm not sure they're, they're all uniquely strange looking. Did you notice that? Absolutely. Yeah. I was trying to figure out if this was like a dig at a, at a demographic in Italy. (laughs) Is this like harping on the low class or like, I don't think there's that much thought put it into it. I just think someone was like, you know, it would be fucked up. Let's show people really weird looking people. <laughs> Maybe it is that simple. So Iris tells everyone that uh, her and Frank are engaged and that they've decided on a date for the wedding. And Frank is not happy about this. No, nah, he gets cold feet. Well, she was a bit presumptuous about setting the date. She was. But either way, Frank is uh, reneging here, his offer. Right. So the man who found the locket sneaks into the house when Frank goes out jogging, and he finds Anna. She's now propped up in the closet, and he takes some photos. It kind of builds suspense, I guess, that we keep seeing this guy discovering things but it doesn't seem to have any impact on the story still. Yeah, again, it really just feels like this guy is building up a a hot blackmail case. I feel like I've already said that like four times. But you're right. We don't see him again for a while, but we do see another fight between Iris and Frank over the Anna doll, and Frank beats Iris up and calls her an old slut and tells her she has to leave. He goes to a bar, presumably to meet a woman, and he does meet this woman, and he asks her to go on a walk. And while they're talking, this old woman walks by reciting a poem. Did you notice this? Yeah, I thought that was pretty ominous, and I was actually wondering if that was the same old woman from the voodoo scene at the beginning. Oh, I didn't think about that might have been can you play the poem yeah let's check the record body of a whore dead forevermore body three times cursed pain and torture first body in a bed body growing dead body in a crypt 
Body hellfire dipped. Body ringing bell. Body into hell. Always be a taker. Hurry, meet your maker. No one's life you save. in your grave. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that makes me love Italian horror movies. And let's see if it's the same moment as the beginning. Oh, it is. Is it? It is the same woman. Interesting. So Leland just checked and it is the same woman. It is um, the same woman. Now, was that because they didn't feel like casting two, two older creepy women or? Hey, you just got to dispel logic with these movies. <laughs> Except the fact that in your dreams, people make multiple appearances out of context. Yeah. But I, I think that that poem is probably the best writing of the whole film. <laughs> I I suppose. I mean, I don't know how good it is by poetic standards, but if it's it it's effective in this scene. It's so catchy and it sounds like a curse. So Anna's twin sister arrives and in my notes I say someone a girl is taking a bath. Yes, the bar girl is taking a bath. Oh yeah, so <laughs> where the <laughs> The other girl was dismembered and, and melted down. And the bathwater is this disgusting Mountain Dew color. Yeah, so did you think it... Okay, so it follow this, this train of events with me. He meets a woman at a bar. He asks her to go on a walk with him in the dark alleyway. And she says, cool. He invites her back to his house. And she's fine with that. And then when they get there... She decides to take a bubble bath. Yeah, she's getting clean for her for her man. She's because she's got to lock this down. Did you see this house? I mean, yeah, I can't imagine like t- doing a quick shower, I suppose. But like lounging in the bath to get clean seems weird. There ain't there is not a shower in this house. It is too old. This this is like a classic Italian villa nestled in the woods. It's probably hundreds of years old. The fact it has a bathtub and running water is is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, well, maybe it's very American of me, but I figured that if they had installed running water, then they had a shower somewhere, but I might be wrong. Hmm. So I found it weird. But anyway, Anna's twin sister arrives at this point, and... Frank freaks out because he wants to get rid of the bathing woman and he tells her that she needs to, you know, he'll take her home, but she needs to leave. Do you think that when he saw Anna's twin sister, he knew it was her sister or he thought it was her? I think he knew it was the sister right away. I mean, our our boy Frank here is going for the porn fantasy of two sisters at the same time. And that is like the perfect end struggle for this film. I'm actually kind of surprised that it doesn't happen, that we don't see that in this movie. Maybe that was too far. <laughs> well, it almost gets to that point. But what's what's more incredible is that he manages to push out this club girl and actually takes her home, presumably takes her home without incident. Right. But... We don't really care because the attention of the film focuses on Anna's sister, who's just left in the dark uh, because I guess the lights go out. And then we see that Iris has set 
the Anna doll up in a chair, and then she chases the sister with a knife. We are skipping some things here. Like what? The ghost of Anna comes out and speaks to her sister from beyond the veil, warns her that the house is cursed. Yeah. I so do you, you think that was her ghost or do you think that was like a vision? What do you think like that was Anna in the wall being like, ooh, <laughs> house is cursed. I actually thought <laughs> that was I, Frank. <laughs> I thought that was Iris messing with her. Uh, I, I just assumed this was just the uh, the second piece of magic realism that we have in, in the film. Oh no, I totally thought it was Iris messing with her. Hmm. Because Iris clearly put the doll in the chair did she i I mean that was my assumption unless the doll moved by itself yeah man ghosts yeah i don't know i think i think iris does all this i think Uh, iris puts the honor doll in the chair and i think iris does the fake voices to try to scare the sister all right we're, we're gonna play the historical record to verify this there's a lot of buildup before the lights turn out. <laughs> Does that sound like the iris you know? I mean, it's all dubbed, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> they would at least have the courtesy of using the same the same dubbing. I mean, I just imagine she was like faking the voice. Well, I guess if you can do voodoo, you can fake a voice, right? Yeah, I mean, if this is Iris just faking the voice, then we really don't know that there's anything supernatural in this film at all. Like, yeah, we see the voodoo at the beginning, but she <laughs> yeah, could have already been sick and dying. Nothing supernatural. Stabbing this doll of pins. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe Anna just ate some of Iris's cooking, and that's what put her in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, she could have been. She could have been cancer stricken, or like, I don't know. I'm just saying we don't know. I watched this movie as if it was devoid of supernatural elements. <laughs> uh. Yeah, maybe that's what what it was supposed to be, but I I don't know. It really strikes me odd that yeah, you know, like this is this is the part of the film that's odd, right? Where Iris sees this sister and immediately hatches this Scooby Doo esque plan to to scare the heebie jeebies out of the sister to get her to leave. That's no more or less logical in my point of view than anything <laughs> else that happens in the movie. Yeah, so um. Well, I, it, you know, viewer, it's up to the viewer to figure it out. They got to create their own narrative. Well, regardless of what the narrative is, I think this scene is really well done. Like the scene of Iris going through the darkness with the knife. It's a really similar vibe to like Halloween, where Michael Myers is just slowly plotting after his victims in the house with the knife. The butcher knife silhouette. Right. Iris kind of looks like um, from Psycho, sort of. Yeah, and you can see, like, there are similarities to Psycho in terms of the plot, right? Like, Psycho is clearly an influence here. Her lighter is also very magical because 
they as she's walking around with this dinky little lighter it's creating so much luminescence but it's because they have a spotlight shining on her from from off camera <laughs> that was a really funny way to do it frank returns and iris and him get into one of the bet like this is a this is a fight right out of like kill bill or something tarantino's done right i mean iris or frank rips half of iris's face off and then she rips his eye out and frank stabs her like they're doing some inhuman violent shit here that i love and before that iris well it looks like in the if you look at it shot from shot it looks like she kicks a field goal like a patriots level field goal right into his this junk so bad that it causes him to bleed out but apparently he was stabbed by the knife but it doesn't look like that because the room is so dark yeah this movie doesn't have the best lighting although on the dvd i watched i think it's probably better than it was on youtube so Frank manages to carry on a sister despite the fact that he's been stabbed several times and had his eye ripped out. And then I'm honestly unsure what happens from here on out in this movie. The plot becomes very hazy to me. Does does Frank put on a sister in the furnace or does he put someone else in the furnace? That's a great point. He burns somebody in the furnace, but then at the end, somebody pops out of the coffin still alive. Yes, so, it's, it's the sister. Right. The sister. So my assumption is that he burned the Anna doll and that the sister is the one that pops out of the coffin at the end. Yes, the sister pops out of the coffin at the end. Because right. she was, uh, either he was going to taxidermy her and just didn't have a chance, or maybe he was just going to try to make it work. Well, I'm just confused because it doesn't show us that, right? It shows him picking up on a sister, and then the next thing we know, somebody's being burned in the furnace. Well, you got to move both bodies, right? So he moves... He moves Anna's sister first, and then he can just come back and grab uh, Anna. But yeah, it doesn't. I didn't really think about that. He he burns he burns the Anna doll that he cherished this whole time. Because when I was reading reviews and things of this, some people think that he burns the sister, and then the when the corpse pops out of the coffin at the end, that's supposed to be Anna, like come back to life. Hmm. Which, honestly, I mean, we're trying to impose logic on an Italian film, and half of the time these <laughs> these things don't make sense. So I mean, it, it's really just the setup for a, a really cheap jump scare, right? Like I saw it coming. I don't know about you, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard. I've seen this movie so many times over the years. Like it's hard for you to remember what I thought the first time I saw it, but it definitely is an attempt at just like a silly twist ending. Either way. Even if it doesn't make much sense, I still think it's a it's a fun journey. All right, so why don't you go ahead and give your final thoughts and a rating out of four? I think that our podcast's first Italian sleaze fest does not disappoint. The absolutely 
idyllic shooting locales are like perfectly punctuated by a hot goblin soundtrack and the signature copious amounts of gratuitous depravity that you really come to expect from this genre. The plot does suffer from some vague peculiarities that we hopefully covered in depth enough. And uh, seemingly there are a lot of unexplored themes. Well, I feel like there are unexplored themes with um, the magic, the ghosts, so on and so forth. But but despite these scattered issues, I think Beyond the Darkness is a solid viewing for both freshies and seasoned veterans to the realm of classic Italian horror. Um, would you call this like a, a golden age? Is this the golden age of Italian horror? Yeah, so this is 1981. Um yeah, I'd say like late 70s through mid 80s is when most of the best Italian horror came out. And I think ultimately I'm going to settle on a three stars. I I really like this movie. Um, I have a soft spot for Italian horror. And like I said earlier, in a lot of ways, like the gore, the strange character motivations, the some of the illogic of the script the iris as a character i think are very characteristic of italian films there's some things that this movie misses though i feel like it doesn't capture the absolute lunacy and surrealism of like a lucio fulci movie it does not capture the style and the perfect blend between goblin score and psychedelic images that Dario Argento can capture. So in some ways I find this movie disappointing, but at the end of the day, I think the acting is great for a movie like this, especially Iris is portrayed really well. Um, we didn't even touch on that actress, but uh, she's been in a lot of, of horror and, consistently is good the gore effects probably the best that i've seen from this era um and maybe of all time like this looks as real as you can get the gore effects in some ways are much more realistic and grounded than the ones you would see in like a lucio fulci movie um I, this is right alongside joe d'amato's other horror movies for me like anthropophagus and absurd i think that trio of movies are all pretty effective um so i'll you know i i've watched this movie before this will not be the last time i watch it uh i probably love it more than i actually respect it but i agree i'll give it three stars before we wrap up i wanted to read a couple of quotes that i found online discussing this movie Bedlam Films, this was from their review, quite simply the grossest of the gross, a disgusting, pandering, ultra-graphic sleazefest from Italy's notorious Joe D'Amato. The film's power, what little there is, comes from its sheer, overwhelming physical disgust. So I thought that was really fitting. And then this is a quote from comingsoon.net. And this is actually a review of Anthropophagus. 
but I think it fits perfectly this film as well. Uh, they write, I think D'Amato was too base a filmmaker to concern himself with something as bourgeois as, you know, sophisticated cinema. He approached horror the same way he approached pornography, simply pointing the camera and honing in on various squirting fluids, penetrations, and gynecology. But he also had an almost animalistic instinct to show the unshowable with a bleak, primal power. Anthropophagus is slow, severe, sickening, and truly upsetting. Its semi-sequel, the following year's absurd, is even gorier, but nowhere near as weird. It stays with you long after the last spleen falls from blood-crusted lips. So that's a that's for Anthropophagus, but totally uh, articulates my feelings on Dead Alive or Buried Alive. All right, that's it for Buried Alive, aka Beyond the Darkness. Next week, uh, we hope you come back. We're doing the 1990 film Night Killer. This is another Italian trash film uh, in a way. It's incredibly weird. And speaking of movies that were unrelated to one another, in Italy, it was released as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, although it has nothing to do with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. It actually has more to do with Nightmare on Elm Street. And if you've seen the film, you'll see what I mean. But it was directed by the very infamous... Claudio Fragrasso. Do you know who that is or what else he directed? I do not. He directed Troll 2. Oh. As well as um, he did Zombie 3 after uh, Lucio Fulci was unable to continue. Um, he directed, or did he just write? No, he directed uh, Monster Dog, the, the horror movie with Alice Cooper. Uh, he directed Rats, Night of Terror, which is the movie where they get dachshunds to play the rats. So he's this is a pretty notorious director, but this is probably my favorite of his films I've seen. So um, check it out. It is available on Amazon Prime, um, as well as probably YouTube. And that's what we'll cover next week. Leland, do you have any last words? No. <laughs> All right. Well, that works for me. You can find everything that we do on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. And uh, wherever you listen to us, please rate, review, and subscribe. That'll that'll really help us out, even if you want to leave us a mean review. Um, please come back next week and join us to discuss night killer all right bye everyone
Ah, 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 ah.